All right, welcome back. As we uh, gather back together, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We will pick it up at the end of the chapter where we left off last week and then work our way through most of chapter 22. Um, the way these sections are broken up is um, you know, just the way the editors put the chapter breaks in, but they didn't fall necessarily in the best places for, um, certainly for teaching. So that's why we have these kind of a strange breaks in what we're doing here as we're going through this section of the book of Acts. So in your Bible, turn to 21, Acts 21. We'll pick it up in verse 37 this morning. We'll have that up on the screen as we read through it together. I think it's important to read through it to get ourselves grounded and to get a context for what is happening. The Word of God says, beginning in verse 37 of chapter 21, And as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And he replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago raised an insurrection and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand, excuse me, I could not see for the glory of that light, comma, (laughs) being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. There, then one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Then it happened, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. 
Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought uh, into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum of money I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Lord, we love your word. Thank you for sharing it with us. And as we study it this morning, we trust that you will minister to us according to your will, your truth, and our need. And you have a great way, Lord, of understanding uh, that as many people as are here or are listening, there are that many needs, and yet you can uniquely take your word and apply it to every single heart, every single situation in a way that is beautiful and kind and merciful and gracious. And you are just that way, God. You are loving. And we thank you for that. And as we listen, would you speak to your servants because our ears are ready, our hearts are open. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we go through this section of Scripture, we're looking at Paul's journey. Remember, he had ended his third journey. He was on the way to Jerusalem, and all along the way as he was going, we were hearing over and over and over that the Holy Spirit was testifying to him in every city that chains and trouble awaited him when he got to Jerusalem. And so as he was journeying, he was getting this message over and over, not as a warning to not go to Jerusalem, but as a warning for what lie ahead when he went. So it was God's will that Paul go to Jerusalem and that he take the stand. We're going to look at some of the scriptures this morning that Paul actually wrote to the Romans that sort of bear his heart. And remember, he wrote Romans prior to this journey to Jerusalem at this point. And so we see a lot there, uh, as we, we will go through that, in terms of what his heart was. What was it that was driving him? What was it that was motivating him to go and to do these things? And, you know, we, we reviewed this last week, but it's just so important that we understand that Paul was led by the Holy Spirit. And when others heard that Paul was saying, hey, the, the Lord is leading me to go to Jerusalem, but he keeps telling me when you get there, there's going to be trouble and, and chains and there's going to be stuff that's going to happen to you. There were people along the way, just as we discovered last week, who were saying, well, if you know these things, why would you do it, Paul? Why would you walk into a trap knowing there's a trap? And he said last week, I am ready to, and willing not only to, to be put in prison, but even to die for my Lord. And as I was thinking about this and thinking about this passage and what's going to happen here in the next few chapters as, as Paul just goes through this journey of being sent from one place to another and, uh, you know, people sort of trying to tear him down, but then not really like Jesus, not really having any strong evidence against him, but just their, their anger. They disagreed with his point of view. You know, what was it about Paul? Why would he do such a thing? Why would he subject himself to all of this madness? And he's going to give us a clue to that this morning as he, in essence, gives his testimony to these people. And for Paul, it was about what happened to him on that day on the road to Damascus. You may remember this back in Acts chapter 9. He was a violent, he was an insolent man. We'll read that a little bit later. And as he was going on his merry way with letters in his hand to persecute these people whom he knew as a completed Jew were standing against Judaism and they were saying there was a Messiah and that he had come and they were saying in, in their way, remember Paul was a part of the Sanhedrin and he was really a doctor of the law, he was saying, no, the Messiah hasn't come yet. It's not possible that the Messiah could have come yet. 
And so he was prepared to persecute and to prosecute anyone who denied those things, even to the point of death, even women. It says men and women here as we read that. And so what would motivate Paul to do such a thing? Because he was saved. Because he met Jesus. Because on that day on the road to Damascus, when he met Jesus, his life changed forever. And I've been thinking so much in these past two, three years, you know, going through COVID and all of that and just what we've seen happen in the world and especially to the church at large and then just in the lives of believers. And and I wonder, and I'm asking this question to myself as much as I am to all of us and to anyone who will listen. And Paul said this in Acts 19 when he went to Ephesus. He says, how were you saved? You know, when you met Jesus, were you saved from the pit of hell? Were you delivered from your sins? The second you met him, did your life change? You may not remember the date and the time, but did your life change? Did something happen inside of you? The Bible says it did. But here's the question, and only you can answer this question, did it happen to you? When you came in contact with Jesus, did, did something switch in your heart? Now, we've all had those aha moments, haven't we, about something? We understand something, oh, two plus two is four, it's not five. You know, we're kind of like, ah, oh, I get it. The light bulb over the head. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to an encounter with the living God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, when that happened to you, and I'm assuming it did since you're sitting here, what happened? What changed in your life? Did your life change? Were you religious beforehand and you're still living a religious life now? You know, religion is about man reaching God. Or do you understand that the living God reached down to us so that he could have a relationship? It's not about religion. It's about relationship. And God himself, through his son, Jesus Christ, reached down from heaven to mankind, not just in a general sense, but in a specific sense to each person because the gospel is personal. Do you know him? This is what drove Paul. He, he wasn't about frequent flyer miles and making friends in different cities. He was about preaching the gospel and seeing as many people as possible come to Christ. And he knew by experience that as he went out and as he spoke the word of God and as he told his story and uh, as he, as he to- told both Jews and Gentiles alike about Jesus... Some were going to believe and some were not going to believe. Some were going to accept and some were not going to accept. Paul had this heart that he wanted to get back home to his city, to his people, because he wanted them most of all to know about Jesus, his Jewish brothers and sisters. So in this context here, Paul was about to be led into the barracks at the end of chapter 21. Uh, He said to the commander, can I speak to you? He obviously, in that moment, spoke to the commander in Greek. Now remember, Paul was uh, a Jew. He was from Cilicia, not from Jerusalem. He was from Syria, not from Israel. Um, He was educated in the best schools. He spoke multiple languages. He spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, and he spoke Greek. And so as he turned and he spoke to this Roman guard, being a Roman citizen, because Tarsus was a a city, a, a Roman province, Uh, He said to this guard, to this commander, may I speak to you? And he spoke to him in Greek. And the commander was like, you speak Greek? And of course, the commander was confused about who he was. He says there in verse 38, are you not this Egyptian? And you can find this in Josephus and other places about this Egyptian who came, who stirred up a rebellion, who had 4,000 people ready to go and they were gonna go to the Temple Mount. And he said, when the city of the wall comes down, because he's like, we're, we're gonna go in, we're gonna create this insurrection and we're gonna take Jerusalem back from Rome. And that, there was this thing that happened. And so this was very recent in their history. And this man is... This commander is sort of looking at Paul, judging by the reaction of the crowd to him and and sort of the command Paul has over them. And he says, aren't you this Egyptian? And Paul says, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, meaning it's not an insignificant city. And he says, I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. 
So when the commander had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned. And now in this moment, these people were all riled up and they were standing there. and, and, And it was a perfect speaking situation. Paul's up on the stairs. There's stone everywhere. So it's a natural amphitheater. And as Paul begins to speak... Uh, they begin to listen, and as he stands up, he waves his hand, and this was kind of a known thing, you know, that a, uh, a rabbi might do to quiet a crowd, and they sort of recognized it and quieted right down, and then he began to speak to them. It says here in the Hebrew language, as we understand it, uh, this would have been in the common tongue of that day, which would have been more of the Aramaic. There was a, an Aramaic dialect within the Hebrew context, and the point is that he spoke to them in their language. So he turned and he spoke to the guard in Greek in his language. And then he turns and he speaks to the people in the, the Aramaic dialect of their language. And as he says to them, uh, it says when they, uh, he motioned to his hand with the people, verse 40. And when there was great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, and then we cross into 22. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in their own language, they kept all the more silent. And so what we notice here is that Paul, just like he's done before, he's building a bridge. He's seeking to reach out to them, to connect with them because they were his people. And they, as we learned from the previous chapter, they had heard that you know, Paul was out there teaching them not to observe the law and to basically to violate the law. And so they were all riled up, ready to have him lynched. And as he's speaking to them, I, I want to at this point sort of bring in Romans chapter 9 so you can begin to get the understanding of the heart that Paul had behind what he was doing. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to, but it's Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Listen to this, for I could wish, think about saying what I'm about to read. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul's heart was, I would be willing to give up my salvation and go to hell in order that my brothers might come to believe in Christ. Is that not a passionate commitment to sharing the gospel, to seeing people come to Christ? If that isn't, I don't know what is. I have to be honest, I I, I read that and I'm like, good for you, Paul. I don't think I could say that. Uh, I don't want to give up my salvation so that somebody else might be saved. But that was his heart. And so this is part of what was driving him to this moment. So as Paul begins to speak, this is the moment he's been dreaming of. Have you ever had that experience? You know, you're you're building up to something big, something significant in your life, and then the moment comes and you're like, man, it's here. I mean, like maybe your wedding day or something, then it happens, and then you're like, well, that was interesting. (laughs) Paul is in this moment right now. Verse 3, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up uh, in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Now mentioning Gamaliel's name here, he's, you know, this, this is the leading teacher of the Hebrew school. I mean, if you got into Gamaliel's class, if he took you under his tutelage, man, you were in the highest class. You were at the top. At the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Interesting, right? They were, they were about to kill him. They certainly were zealous, right? And he's saying, I understand this zeal. I recognize it. I have that same zeal. It's just not quite manifest in the way you're manifesting it. So I'm a Jew just like you. Now, something just to kind of help us put all this together. In Acts chapter 22 here, Paul is telling his story to persuade the Jews. 
And in Acts 26, when we get to that, you're going to see that he's telling his story again, but that time he's telling it to persuade Gentiles. In Philippians 3, Paul told his story for a theological understanding to show the biblical, the theological bedrock of his faith. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, as Paul is writing to Timothy, his young protege, to whom you know, he was passing the baton off to, he was telling the story there to give encouragement. Now, why do I say that? Because, again, everyone has a testimony. And God can use our testimony, and we can use our testimony. You may say, but my testimony is not very exciting. I mean, I wasn't a hell's angel. You know, there, there wasn't this dramatic shift in my life. But you see, your testimony is your testimony. Your story is your story. And for us to discount it and say, well, my story, how, how I came to Christ, what I was like before Christ and after Christ isn't that significant. We're, we're discounting that the Holy Spirit can use our testimony. Now, Paul's testimony was obviously significant, right? He was, he was, he was completely in darkness and then he was completely in light. But the point is, he's telling his story, he's allowing God to use his story, and he refines his story, not changing the facts, but he, and how he applies it, how he tells his testimony to different people, to different groups in the moment that they might come to know Christ as a result of his story. In Romans chapter 10... Again, just thinking about this, what is Paul doing? He says this, Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. In Philippians 3, Paul said, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and we have no confidence in our own flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ." Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul's heart. This is what governed his life. Paul was not concerned about how the stock market was doing. Paul was not concerned about his 401k. His 401k was in heaven. The stock market, the only stock market he cared about was in heaven. Verse 4, I persecuted this way, again using a word to communicate to them because they called Christians the way, it was sort of a derogatory term. I persecuted the way, this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. You know, I had orders to do this. You know, we, Paul recounts this later this whole thing uh, about having, you know, been given this, these letters and been given orders and authority to go and to persecute Christians. In Galatians 1, we find, he says, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. That was where he was. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, 
that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. And of course, he goes on to tell the story there of what happened. And then Paul later, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although... I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. In other words, I was lost. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This was in his mind, at the forefront of his mind all the time. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who were going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul looked at his life as an example. He's like, I'm a living example. I am a living epistle. Verse 5 again of chapter 22, As also the high priest bears me witness in all the counsel of the elders, Uh, from whom I received letters to the brethren. I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there um, to Jerusalem to be punished. I was so zealous. In other words, I went out as far as I could go just seeking to find people who were for this way but against Judaism. And then he says in verse 6, Now it happened as I journeyed, And I came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. So he's sort of retelling his story, his testimony, as it happened in Acts chapter 9. And he says, And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Saul had this encounter where he went, No, I was persecuting the people who believe in you. And Jesus says, No, 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 you're persecuting me. You mess with my people, you're messing with me. Remember, Jesus said it, he said it in the Beatitudes, he said it all throughout his life, he says, they will persecute me, but understand, it's not you that they're persecuting, but they are persecuting me. You think they hate you, but what they hate is me in you, that they're persecuting me. And so, Jesus spoke these words to Paul. Why are you persecuting me? So I answered, proper answer, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Okay, I got the point. Okay, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light, and they were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. And so I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. What shall I do, Lord? This is a question every one of us should be putting before the Lord. All the time, constantly, every day. I I don't know about you, this is what happens in my life. You know, I have a job, I work, you know, there's a weekly cadence to life, isn't there? You know what's going to happen on Monday morning at 10 and blah, 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 and Wednesday night. And you, you know this, our lives are kind of this way, right? And here's the problem. We can kind of get lulled to sleep with our schedule and with our practices to the place where we aren't, we are no longer asking the Lord, Lord, what do you have for me? What, what's in it today, Lord, for me? And so when, when Paul, or at that point, Saul of Tarsus said, what shall I do, Lord? When we ask that question, just as Paul was, we have to be ready, willing, and able for whatever he might say. We can't ask that question with a caveat of, as long as I like what you have to say, as long as it agrees with my plans, I'll listen. See, what if God says something radical to you? What if he tells you to quit your job? What if he calls you to go into ministry? You're like, Lord, there's no money in it. There's no 401k in ministry. There's no health care. How do I do this? You follow me. This goes against conventional wisdom, doesn't it? 
It goes against the way we have been trained to think in this society, yet we need to learn to think biblically and not just practically. What shall I do, Lord? And he says, Arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. This word appointed means drawn up, in order, arranged, designated, determined, and established. In other words, God's saying, I already got your life all ordered out. And he's going to tell you when you get there, of course, Ananias, this man, this mouthpiece of God, he's going to tell you all these things that I've appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because the glory of God blinded him, I was led by the hand of those who were with me. I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, he came to me and stood and said to me, now let's just stop here for a moment. You're this man. We've just read who Paul was in Philippians and, and in other places. This, this man of, of learning, of scholarship, of highest degree, of passion, of zeal. And now he's been humbled to the place by Jesus, blinded, that is to be led into a city by the hand. And who's some crazy dude named Ananias is coming in to tell him what the will of God is for his life. This is crazy, right? We read this story, maybe we're too familiar with it. This is crazy. Think about this happening to you. You're driving down the road in your car. All of a sudden, there's a bright light. You kind of get off the road without having an accident. You hear the voice of God speaking to you. A good Samaritan pulls up and says, here, I'm going to take you up into the city, and I'm going to go deposit you at this address here. And I believe the Lord's telling me there's somebody there who wants to speak to you. And like, what is happening to me? And you get up there, and this person comes in, and they say, here's the voice of the Lord to you, and here's God's will for your life. And this is what's happening to him. This had to be a crazy thing for them to hear as he was saying it to them. Ananias came to me, he stood, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. And then he said, God of our fathers, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one, referring to Jesus, and hear the voice of his mouth. So he's appointed you, and now he's chosen you. And this word chosen means to take into one's hands. And so God is saying, I'm taking you, Paul. I'm wrapping my hands around you, and I'm I'm bringing you to myself. I've chosen you. I've appointed you. You are a chosen vessel of mine. Your life is now my life. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. I think you should underline that. Verse 15. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. You see, your testimony matters. It wasn't just that Paul's mattered. Ours matters also. God saved us for a reason. When God saved you, when he saved me, it wasn't just to give you fire insurance. It was to make you his. You belong to him. He loves you. He saved you first and foremost because he loves you. Not because he needed another worker in the vineyard. He saved you because he loves you. He has set his love upon you. And you say, how do I explain that? I've never been loved like that. You can't explain it. Has anyone ever experienced the unconditional love of God before Jesus? I want you to be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. What has God done for you? Remember, didn't Jesus say this? He healed people. They're like, I want to follow you, Lord. He's like, no, no, you, you you go tell them what God's done for you. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins and call on the name of the Lord. See, baptism doesn't save, but baptism is significant, isn't it? Because when we go through that process, that act of baptism and obedience and faith, responding to the Lord, uh, Acts, I mean, uh, Romans chapter 6, the first few verses sort of gives us the, the, the significance of baptism. 
But here we find as the Spirit speaking through Ananias into the ear of Paul says, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. You see, it's symbolic, isn't it? When we go into the water, it's like we're being washed, like we're taking a bath, like we're getting cleansed. And when we come up out of the water, Romans 6 says, and we are raised to newness of life. And it's so significant for us to be baptized. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a point, it's a marker, it's a memorial, it's an Ebenezer stone in our lives. That from this point forward, I'm different, I'm clean, I belong to him. And so Ananias says, go and wash away your sins and call on the name of the Lord. And you see, that's not just a one-time thing, that's an everyday thing. When we get up in the morning, Lord, are you there? Do you have a word for me, Lord? What are we going to do today, Lord, as you lay your head down on the pillow tonight? Lord, how do we do today? Did I miss something you wanted me to see? Lord, call on the name of the Lord. Now, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. Now, this is a completely different experience than anything he'd experienced before. He's now in the spirit, he's praying, he was in a trance and he says, and, and I saw him, that is Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Why? Because prior to that time, you know, he was the man, he was the persecutor and the prosecutor of the Gentiles and of the Jews and anyone who spoke against Judaism. And he's like, hey, they're not gonna hear from you, they're not going to receive from you. So get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So the Lord directing him, Paul's like, I want to preach to them. And he's like, no, not right now. They're not going to hear it. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing and consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he said to me, depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word, the word Gentile. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he is not fit to live. Why did that word set them off? In their mind, the Gentiles were dogs. They were nothing more than kindling for the fires of hell. That's how they thought of Gentiles. And for Paul to say that God ordered me, a completed Jew, to go to the Gentiles, but not just go to them, but to to share the gospel with them, to tell them of God, to, to tell them of his grace. You see, the Judaistic view was if you as a Gentile want to come to God, you have to come to Jerusalem and you have to go to the temple and you have to petition to be proselytized or converted to Judaism. And you have to get circumcised. And you have to renounce your former life. And you have to say, from now on, I will obey the law. You had to convert to being a Jew, but you had to go through this process by coming to Jerusalem. Paul's now going to them saying, hey, I'm taking God to them. And they're, in their mind, they're thinking, well, you certainly can't take the temple with you. How, how are you doing this? You see, the grace of God was too liberal in their mind. It was something they couldn't accept because they had grown up believing that they had to do all of these things to serve God and if they didn't do those things, they couldn't be saved, they wouldn't have the favor of God. Each day was measured by how did they do against keeping the law. Paul went with a message that was so radically different. For the grace of God saves us. It is by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. That was the gospel he took to them, but they couldn't accept that. They, they were convinced that he was bringing a false gospel to them. It's okay for a Gentile to convert and become a Jew, but you're telling Jews to become like Gentiles in how they live their lives. This was blasphemy to them. They had the mindset that a Gentile really couldn't be saved. One commentator said this, many people today are offended that good people, quote, 
must be saved the same way that sinners are saved. They want a gospel that will keep them separate from the riffraff of society. I don't know when the last time is you kind of parked your car and just kind of walked up through the heart of Manchester where the drug-infested neighborhoods are. But as you walk by and we see those people who are, in many respects, hopelessly trapped in addictions, do we look at them as people who need Christ and who need to be delivered from the pit of hell? Or do we look at them and say, I'm glad I don't live here. I got a house out there way far away from them. Does that view infiltrate our view of the gospel? Does it hold us back from sharing the gospel with people whom we might think are unworthy? The gospel of God is for everyone, isn't it? Every single person is worthy of the gospel. We are unworthy in the sense of our sin, but we are worthy because our sin is what qualifies us for the for the gospel of grace. Paul again Romans 11, this attitude that he had, I say then has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleased with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone and left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul looked at his people and he said, they're still worthy, they still need the gospel of grace. Yeah, they might be a hard case because they're religious. Anybody have any religious family or friends, Catholic family or friends, you talk to them about the Lord, you bring the gospel of grace to them and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm good, I'm all set. You're like, but do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah, I see him every Sunday. He's up on the cross at the back of the church. No, he's not. He's risen. He's not on the cross. He's resurrected. Paul had this attitude that I must be because God had told him the voice of truth. Then as they cried out and they tore off their clothes in verse 23, they threw dust into the air. This was their typical way of kind of wailing and protesting. The commander ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Remember, they didn't speak Hebrew, so they didn't know what Paul was saying. and they, All they knew was they saw the reaction. And as they bound him with thongs, they were getting ready to scourge him. Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? So Paul's now sort of playing the card of his Roman citizenship. And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander saying, take care what you do for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came in and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. The commander answered, I purchased it. I wasn't there by birth, but I purchased my Roman citizenship. It cost him a lot of money. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. I'm a citizen by right. Then immediately those who were about to examine him, and when you see that word examine, that means they were going to beat him black and blue. They were going to scourge him like Jesus was scourged. And they withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. And so we have to stop here because of the break and because of our time, and we'll continue that next week. The point here is this, as Paul was given in that moment his opportunity to preach. The thing he had always wanted to do, the thing that was always on his heart, his own countrymen. He he was like, if anybody can get through to them, it's me. I don't know about you, but I've thought that at times about people. They may not listen to to a street evangelist, but surely they'll listen to me because I know them, they know me, we're of the same ilk, whatever. And then you go to them and you tell them about Christ and then they kind of throw it back in your face and they reject it. You see, our responsibility, just like Paul's responsibility, is to sow the seed. 
And just like the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, the sower went out to sow seed. And the idea was, as we read that parable, he, the, the sower went around and he just sowed the seed liberally. He was just like throwing it everywhere, just all over the place. Some fell over here. It's obviously not going to grow over here, but you can't, when you're sowing, if you've ever done something like that, you can't, you know, like get it in the exact place. You know, today we can with farm equipment, but, you know, the idea is you sow the seed. You sow it liberally. You cast it out across the ground. And there's all sorts of ground out there. And in the scriptures, we're told there was four types as we read that parable. Paul went about sowing seed. He sowed the seed through preaching and teaching the word. He sowed the seed by telling his testimony. He sowed the seed by his presence. He sowed the seed by his kindness. He sowed the seed by showing love to people, by showing grace to people, by coming alongside them in their time of need. Whatever means and method was necessary and was available, that's what he did. It was interesting. I was invited this past week uh, to go down there. Sort of a group of Calvary pastors who were meeting down in Connecticut on Friday. So Pastor Jeremy and I went down. I took the day off, and it was a meeting about how can we be more involved in church planting here in New England specifically. So we we went. We met with some guys who came in from. Uh, there's a group within Calvary Chapel that's formed sort of a church planting network. So we met with those guys, we talked with them, we prayed with them. Um, you know, just kind of looking and praying about what God might want to do here. And that's, that's our attitude. You know, we aren't here to plant, you know, 10 mega churches of, you know, a thousand plus people. God may, in this culture, want to plant 10 churches of 50 people throughout the region. That's Okay. The goal isn't a megachurch, the goal is the gospel. And Paul had this attitude. And he's like, if my testimony will work in this situation, I'll give it. Remember back, I think it was Acts 17 when he was in Athens, when he walked into the Areopagus there and he saw all of that, what did he do? He appealed to them on the basis of where they were as Gentiles. You're searching for some God to worship. There's this one here that says to the unknown God, I want to talk to you about him. I want to appeal to you on the basis of your openness to figure out who this unknown God is. And so just like in life, just like in conversation, when we meet people and we talk to them, we've got to kind of relate to them where they are. If we want to build a bridge, if we want to have a relationship if I have a, a college degree and an education and I'm talking to someone who doesn't or vice versa, uh, I can't come in with my big vocabulary and talk about, hey, what do you do for work? Well, I do rocket science. What do you do? I, I mop floors. What's the connection? It's Jesus. How do we get there? We just humble ourselves and we say, brother or sister, where do you live? What's your life like? How can I come alongside you? And that becomes the common denominator, love concern. Everyone has a testimony. Everyone has a gift. God has given every person who has been saved with a gift or gifts of the Spirit. And we are to use those gifts for His glory. The gifting of the gifts is an indication of how He wants us to work, how He wants to use us. Paul certainly had a gift of being an apostle, a, a pioneer, a pastor, Others have other gifts. Use your gift for the glory of God. You say, but my gift is a gift of serving. I just like to make coffee and sweep floors. God can use that to save and to bless people as much as he can use an apostle. The point is that we pray, that we seek the Lord, that we love people, that we have a desire like Paul had for people to come to Christ. So what will you do with all this? Well, what will you do with Paul's story? What will you do with your own story? Will you tell others what God has done for you? And let him use your story for his glory and for their good. And don't give up hope. You know, we live in a, a dark place. We live in a hard place, spiritually speaking. And, and maybe there's only one convert a year. That's okay. The Bible says that the, all the angels in heaven rejoice over one person who comes to Christ. So let's maintain that attitude. You know, we, we may be few, but we're strong because God is with us. Amen. Lord, we love you this morning. We bless you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that 
You've saved us, Lord, that we do have a testimony. Show us, Lord, how we can use our testimony, our story. To preach the gospel as a platform. To draw people in. And Lord, we know in, in the end, it's not really our story. It's your spirit working in that moment in the lives of those people that we're speaking to. And Lord, so often we might say something and we think it fell flat and then they come back a week or two later and they say, you know, I've been thinking about that thing you said. Lord, we want to see people come to Christ. Lord, use us here today now where there's only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Use us, God. Wherever you've put us, whatever sphere you've put us in, May we live and operate in such a way that even if it's unpopular, even if it's politically incorrect, even if it might cost us our jobs, that we would not neglect the name of Jesus out there in the marketplace. And that you would use our lives to preach the gospel. I think it was Augustine who said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. May that be true of us. May you become so real to us, Jesus, that we see everything through the lens of our salvation and our future and the fact that you want us to bring others along with us. May we see the world, Lord, as you said, the the, the harvest is, is, is white unto harvest, that people are ready. Our job is to sow. Your job is to work, to convict, to draw to salvation. Salvation, Lord, is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It's not up to us to persuade or convince. We're just to be a witness. We're just to say, hey, I'm just a a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Would you do those things, Lord, in and through our lives? Would you humble us? Would you keep us focused on the main thing? And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.